Colossians chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles in the seats, it's page 983. Before we get to that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we adore you. We, we praise you for the privilege it is to be together this morning and to worship you. And we pray now, Lord, that indeed that you would speak to us through your word as we've just been singing as we look in these verses in Colossians 1. Father, please, please be our guide and our shepherd. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If you were here last week, you know that we started a new series that we're going to be in for the next number of weeks, going through the book of Colossians. And we started out acknowledging that virtually almost all the commentators agreed that the, the main theme of Colossians is what the Apostle Paul, the author, gets at in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, as he talks about pressing into Christ. The main theme is maturing in Christ. And we talked about, if you were here last week, one of the main things that means is that the goal of the Christian life, we said, is not exclusively an event, or in other words, just putting our faith in Jesus. That's a significant part of it, but we also talked about the fact that it's an ongoing process, and it's a daily process of slowly growing into the people that look more and more like Jesus and the kind of people that God wants us to be. That's the goal for those of us here who are following Jesus. Now, I want to start this morning thinking a little bit more about that phrase, maturing in Christ, because I realize um, maturing in Christ is not something that we, it's not a phrase that we necessarily use with one another every day. You know, when I, when I bumped into Wen this morning as he walked into the hall, I didn't say, hey, how's the maturing in Christ going? And that's just not how we talk. And when we say maturing in Christ, there are di- it's not as if all the same things come to our minds. Different things come to our minds. You know, it's, it's not like when we talk about other kinds of maturity. It's not like when you're watching TV and you hear a, a commentator for a, a, a game that you're watching say, you know, that person's really matured as an athlete. You know, we hear that and we, and we know what that person means. We, we know that they're talking about this, this young man or this young woman's probably really honed in on their skills Maybe they're better as a leader on their team. Maybe they've got more discipline or they're just sharper because the amount of time that they've played that sport. You know, we talk about saying uh, that a, a young man or a, a young woman, has they've really matured into being a, a young man or a young woman. We, we, we say to, you know, the parents of our friends' kids, you know, your kids have really grown up. They've really matured. And what do we mean? That we mean they're, they're more confident in who they are? They're... they're people that we need to take more seriously. We just can't dismiss them, but they've, they've really grown. But what are we supposed to think about the language of maturing in Christ, this, this language of maturity in a Christian context? That's what we're going to think more about today. And we're going to see that today, the Christian life, this, this life of maturity in Jesus, according to Colossians 1, 9 through 14, involves at least two things that we're going to talk about. One, a way of life, and two, empowered by God. Okay, not, not very complicated this morning. A way of life we're going to see empowered by God. So first, let's think about this way of life that Paul's talking about. One of the things that we're going to see in just a second is that when somebody puts their faith in Jesus Christ, so when somebody becomes a Christian, 
This is more for that person of just having a change in, we might say, kind of their religious identity. So it's, it's more than just when they fill out a census, they put a different answer in the bubble for, for Christian versus something else. It's supposed to influence our everyday life, what has happened inside of us. And I was thinking about this earlier this week, and, and it kind of struck me this way. Now, I'm, one, I'm not naive enough to assume that everybody here in the South cares about uh, pro- professional football. I know we are, in, we are in SEC territory. I recognize that, and people are bigger fans. But just by way of illustration, when I was living in the Washington, D.C. area, you probably could have said that I was someone that supported the Redskins. Okay, that's not also necessarily an easy thing to be if you follow the Redskins. But I, I could cheer for them if someone wanted me to. And then years later, my wife and I moved to the Houston, Texas area. And what happened to us then? We, we tried to be gracious, and we became Texans fans. Okay, a little bit easier sometimes to be a Texans fan. Now, this resulted in a change, but it wasn't very much of a change. You know, maybe uh, we're a different color-looking jersey, or my, um, during a certain window during the week, I was watching one time, uh, sorry, one team versus another team. But it's not like anybody pulled me aside after they noticed I could cheer for the, the Texans and says, you know what, Brian, I've been watching your life really closely, and you are an entirely different person. What is it? You know, no, Lauren didn't come up to say, Brian, I noticed that you're such a better husband to me now that you're a Texans fan. You know, or, or people that I worked with that just said, you know, wow, something's really different about you. I just don't get what it is. That's, that's not what happened. Why? Because that's just a change in identity. It's just a simple change in saying, you know, how we identify ourselves. But it doesn't change the practical things of our lives. The Christian life, on the other hand, Paul says, is supposed to change in a very serious way because of this. Being a Christian is totally different. And what Paul's trying to say is there is something that is so significant and so fundamental that has taken place in you that there's no way it can affect your everyday life. It's got to affect everything in your life. Everyone should see the difference, your spouse, your coworkers, everybody. So where are we getting that from? That's how we're going to jump into the text now. If you have the Bible in front of you, look with me on page 983 or in your own Bible or on your device. Verses 9 through 10, we're going to pick up there. We'll stop at 10. Paul says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, now, if you, if you look at those two verses and if, if you were to think about what's going on here, there's essentially three movements that are building on one another. Movement one, Paul starts out saying that he and, and Timothy, who we are, understand at the, from the beginning are um, working together to write this book, he says that they can't stop praying for the, Christian, for those who are, uh, for the Colossians. Remember what he says. It's at the beginning of verse 9. It leads with and so, and that reminds us there's something significant preceding that. If you look at that, verses 7 through 8, what does Paul say? He says that they've been giving thanks because they've been hearing through this person, Epaphras, about what's been going on with the Colossians. And, and earlier we read about the fact that there's, there's this love they have for Jesus There's this love, it says, they have for all the saints, this love for one another. And so they can't stop praying for the Colossians, giving thanks to God, but also praying something else. And that leads us to movement two in their prayers. 
Notice what they pray for, going back to verse 9. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So think about that just for a second. When, when they're praying for the Colossians, there's a lot of different things that the Colossians could probably use prayer for. On one hand, they could be praying for healing. You know, just like every church, there were probably people that were sick. There were probably people that needed to feel better. That's not what they're praying for specifically right now, Paul says. They could probably be praying for money, you know, for resources. Again, just like most church families, there could probably be more resources there. But that's also not what they're praying for. What are they praying for? They're praying for the Colossians to have a knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's a very unique thing, isn't it, to pray for knowledge for somebody? It's, it's kind of intangible. It's not like praying for a, a really concrete thing, but they're praying for information, for wisdom. Why? And that takes us to movement three, which is where all these verses have been going so far, the main emphasis. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So summarize this just for a second. Paul and Timothy, they're here. They're praying. They're they're talking about a manner of living, a way of life, but enable them to do that. They're specifically asking that the Colossians can have the knowledge of God's will. Why are they praying for that? Why are they praying for these people to have the knowledge of God's will? Because if... If any of us is going to live in a way that reflects a certain identity that we're supposed to have, we have to know how to live, don't we? Now, think about it for a second. Uh, Imagine a young man or a young woman that enlists in the army, and they show up, and they're at maybe boot camp, and and there's a drill sergeant there, and that says, you know what? You are no longer to think of yourself um, as Paul or Sarah. You are to think of yourself, first and foremost, as a soldier. Now, that's probably not a surprise to them. But how do they do that? What what are those two people expecting next? I'm assuming they're expecting to be trained. What does it mean like to think of yourself as a soldier first? Maybe they would assume they're going to be given some sort of a a handbook that has a code of conduct. Maybe they're going to be receiving training in the weeks to come. They have expectations. Why? Because if, if we're supposed to live in a certain way that's congruent with who we are or who we're being told that we are, we got to know what to do. And in the same way, Paul and Timothy, they're praying on a regular basis that the Colossians would know what the will of God is. So as they go about everyday life, they would be able to live in a way that is worthy of the Lord. Now, if that's the how of this lifestyle, let's now look at the what. Okay, so when Paul and Timothy says that Christians are to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, what are we supposed to take away from that? We're going to get, look again at verse 9, starting with those words. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this takes us back to what we were just looking at a, a couple minutes ago as we were thinking about the Christian life being more than just our identity. Let's think more about, just for example, the, the meaning of this phrase, bearing fruit in every good work. What's Paul mean when he's talking about the idea 
of bearing fruit. If you've read the Gospels before, you know that the idea of, of or the language of fruit is language that Jesus is using all over the place in the story of his life and in his interactions with people. And, and just a couple of examples in, in Luke 6 and John 15, what's Jesus talking about when he's doing that? Jesus is emphasizing, isn't he, that there is a relationship or there is a connection between internal and external realities. That's, that's what he's talking about. And for example, some of you know Luke 6, 43. What does Jesus say? He says, good trees don't produce bad fruit, and bad trees, similarly, they don't pr- bad trees don't produce good fruit. There's a connection between what something is and what they make or what they produce. If you've read John 15, you remember the words that Jesus says. He says, I'm the vine to the disciples, and you're the branches. If you remain in me, you'll produce much fruit. Now, if we go back to what Paul's been saying about the context of of bearing fruit in the Christian life, do you see what he's saying? He's saying to live in a manner worthy of the Lord is to say that when it comes to our hearts and our behaviors and the gospel, the human heart was never meant to be a reservoir of the gospel. It wasn't meant to be a reservoir. It's, it, it's meant to be a river for the gospel. Think, think about that for a second. What does a reservoir do? A reservoir collects. It's a place for storage, isn't it? How does a river work? Things flow in it and through it. They come in and they go out. What Paul's saying here is very similar, that for the person who has put their faith in Jesus, an internal and a supernatural work has happened inside of you. This is what we talked about last week. We saw last week in in these first verses, Colossians 1 through 8, the fact that Paul says what you're experiencing in your life is what God's doing around the world as the gospel has indeed gone throughout the world and it's spreading. That's what's resulting in this faith and this love that y'all have. But what Paul's saying as he continues is that the human heart, when it comes to the gospel, is not to be the place where the gospel stops. It's supposed to keep going. The, the, the heart's not the final destination. God is wanting to work in us and then through us. And he's reminding us, we were created for good works. If you read other places in the scriptures, you know. At the beginning of Romans, it talks about for the obedience of the faith. Ephesians 1, for good works that were prepared for us for, in him before the foundations of the earth. So when God, when God comes into your life, Paul is saying, he's wanting to change you, but he's wanting to change more than just your heart. He's wanting to change everything about you. Why? One thing that struck me is thinking and looking at this is because I think when God, if God comes into your life and he does something inside of you, you know what's happened. But if that's where it stops, how many people are able to give God glory? Maybe one, hopefully. But when God comes into your life and when he does something in you that, in fact, your spouse does notice um, because of a, a new faith that you have in Jesus or because the, your neighbor's or your family members, or the people that work with you, when they notice that something is different, that audience for God's glory is far, far bigger. So when it comes to to thinking about bearing fruit, 
what Paul's wanting to remind us is that God is in us and he's, he's wanting us to live a different way in order that God would get glory and that he would continue to build his kingdom through his people. That's our first point this morning as we think about a new way of life, a new kind of life as we grow into maturity in Christ. But secondly, not just a new way of life, but a life that's empowered by God. We said that Paul and Timothy are praying nonstop. They're praying for the knowledge of God's will. And then secondly, did you notice the other thing that this passage says they're praying for in verse 11? It says they're praying for strength. Strength for the Colossians. Why would they need that? Look with me at verse 11. May he be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Let's just stop there. So in the midst of their living this new life, Paul and Timothy are praying for the Colossians to have strength, to have patience and endurance. And if you stop and you think about that for a second, and you think about the language and the words of of endurance and patience, think about the way that that frames our understanding of the Christian life and the expectations that we should have about what the about what the Christian life might have in store for us. Here's another way we can think about it. Let's say you have a friend that you connect with uh, maybe once a week and you get lunch, a Christian friend. And if you were to say to them, hey, um, I'm sorry, I can't join you next week. I'm actually going on vacation. I'm going to the beach. I'm going to take a book. I'm going to relax. How would you respond if, if your friend were to say to you, okay, but I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you to have patience and endurance. That'd be kind of weird. When it, we, that, why would they say that? We would look at them like they were crazy. Because when it comes to vacation, patience and endurance aren't necessarily the words that we're hoping we're going to need. Um, maybe if you've gone on vacation with your in-laws, for some of you, those are two things that you're praying for or other people are praying for you. But for most of us, a vacation is supposed to be something that is carefree, um, that is peaceful, that is relaxing. Patience. And endurance. Paul and Timothy are praying for these things when it comes to the Christian life. Why? Because they know according to God's design and in his economy, the Christian life isn't always a vacation. It, it's not like just kicking it at the beach. There, there are times uh, it, it goes up and down. There are times that are, that are really joyful, that are deeply meaningful and easy. There are other times or situations in our relationships with other people or and other circumstances in our lives, where things go about it exactly the opposite of how we would hope that they would go. And, and that's just why the Christian life takes perseverance. We know this, you know, especially knows this, is other people who are living in parts of the world where there's huge persecution for following Jesus. That also involves endurance and patience. In just a moment, we're going to pray uh, for Zach, one of our interns um, studying at Beeson. He's going to be going and serving with other students on another part of the planet, a, a place where Christians are not always praised or supported. Christian life's really hard. And that's why Paul uses the same kind of language. Some of y'all remember the language that he uses in 2 Timothy 4. Do you remember this, this line? It's a great line when he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
Okay, that's strong language. Some of us hear, hear that and think that sounds kind of intense. But if you've been a Christian for more than a couple months, you know that's what it feels like. That's, that's the kind of strength that we're going to need. Now, I would add, it, it's also, we also know that it's not the kind of strength that comes naturally to us. And if any of us has hopes or expectations that we're going to be able to endure in that way, to have that kind of patience, to, to walk through the, the obstacle course that is the Christian life, we're not going to be able to do it on our own. We're going to need help. And that's what, the, um, that's what Paul and Timothy are praying for with the Colossians in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power. Who are they asking the power for? God. It's not a kind bar or, or some other source. They're asking that God will help the Colossians in order that they can do these things not on their own strength and with their own power, but with God's strength. So it's an entirely new way of living as they press into that maturity in Jesus, Paul argues. But it's being done with the power of God, done with God's strength. And so what I want to do now is I want to close, and as I do, I want to think just for a second about uh, this call that we have to maturity in Christ and the Christian life. Because I want to argue that when it comes to a passage like this, and, and particularly when we read those verses about living a, a life that is worthy of the Lord, most of us, I think if we're honest, tend to misunderstand that verse in, in one of two ways, if, uh, naturally. And if we're not careful, and if we don't look to the verses later, um, we're not corrected by the scriptures. And so what I want to do is I want to look at those and ask, what are these? First, let's, and let's look at this um, going back to verse 10. Again, we've been talking again and again about this life, living in a way that's worthy of the Lord. On one hand, isn't it true, there are some of us for whom, and we talked a little bit about this week, our understanding of the Christian life may be primarily put your faith in Jesus and then kind of get involved with Christian stuff, like go to church, go to Bible study, I don't know, fill in the blank yourself. But we're not thinking very much about what does it mean to, in an, on, in an ongoing way, be growing in our maturity in Jesus. And, and I think the reason why that might be the case is because isn't it true for some of us, whether it's communities that we're raised in or just our own general impression we've got of Christianity, when it comes to this this process, I mean, what you can really call discipleship, pardon me, of growing into the image of Jesus, we kind of look at it as optional, don't we? You know, we kind of think of it as like the, the pass-fail class that you, you took in college. Any, anyone else take a pass-fail class in college? I was probably the only one. Well, I took some, and I can tell you why I took them, not only to protect my GPA, but why, why does anyone take a pass-fail class? You take it at least this is why I did it, to meet the minimum threshold of requirements in order to get through that class and to pass, but not to have invest a minute more of energy or thought. And if we're not careful, isn't it possible, at least I know in, in, in America and particularly in, in the Bible Belt where we live, we can have this impression that being a follower of Jesus and, and living the Christian life is is it starts with praying a prayer, but we don't give much more thought to this. If that's the case for you, there's some 
verses that are very important for us to remember. Look down in the passage. We didn't, this is maybe the most profound part of this passage when you get to verses 13 and 14. Remember what it says here being said about God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Thank you. Think about this. If, if you feel totally indifferent to, to God, it is possible that we might have forgotten or we might not have become aware for the first time of just what God's done for us. Because friends, for any of us, if we have not been in Jesus, we stand before a holy and perfect God as the broken, flawed people that we are. If God is to be just and if he is to be good, we stand before him nothing but condemned. We stand before him totally guilty. But what has he done? He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have forgiveness of sins. That, that's why that we, we, we cling to those verses in, in places like 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it talks about Jesus, that him who had no sin being made sin in whom we have the righteousness of God. Okay? And, and if, if, if we don't have any sense in light of a passage like this to wanting to respond, it makes you wonder, do we really know what's taking place? When someone does something for you, if you've ever been stranded on the side of a road and had someone uh, change your tire, or if you've ever forgotten your wallet and you've had someone cover lunch for you, okay, those aren't two huge things, but small things. When someone does something for you, significant, what, how do you respond? Normally you say, what can I do for you? Thank you so much. Is there anything that I can do? Take that with the gospel and, and, and multiply that sentiment by a thousand, not because we're able to repay God anything for what he's done for us, but because when we know whom we are in Christ, we have a sense, I want to live for you, Jesus, because of what you've done for me. I, I can't pay it back, but I want to live in a way that is, that is fitting or that's appropriate. That's really what it's talking about in a, when it says in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want to live as the person that you redeem me to be. Will you help me do that? So if, if we're wrestling with that sense of whether or not this is kind of a, a thing, this, this maturity in Jesus, living a new way, praying for God to help us, if we're wrestling with that, remember what he's done for us, friends. He has rescued us. He has forgiven us our sins. But similarly, there, there are others for, of us that, that we look at those words in verse 10, and, and we are struck in a different way. We hear about living in a, in a manner worthy of the Lord, and, and we are a performance-oriented person, and we're used to working really hard and to earn in our keep. And we hear worthy, and we think it's about earning. And, and, and we, think, we think it's about... Um, proving ourselves like, like the high school football player that's trying to earn his place on the team for the, the first string, like the, maybe the young woman that's in law school, and she's trying to land that summer internship so that she can get that job that she wants when she finishes law school. We hear worthy of the Lord, and we think, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to live a life in which I'm going to earn, and I'm going to show God that I'm good enough in order that he should love me. Friends, if that's you, um, and, you're, and you're seeking to live that way, it's going to kill you, and it will be the end of you. For a lot of us in this room, starting with myself, that's the way that we're naturally wired. 
If that's you, and if you're thinking that you have to qualify yourself in order to enjoy these things, look at what he says later down in verse 12. Look at what Paul says. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Friends, God has qualified you. If you've put your faith in Jesus, he's the one that has qualified you. And, and, and so if, if, if you hear this language of, of needing to live a life that is worthy of our Lord and you are at all tempted to now say, okay, now I've got it. I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna grab by the bull by the horns. I'm gonna prove myself to God and everybody else. You're gonna fail. You're gonna get tired. But when you know that you don't have to qualify yourself, but that you have been qualified by Jesus, you, you know you are doing this by his power and through his strength. And this is not something that you will tire of. And there is great, great mercy. And so as we continue in this journey through Colossians together, friends, let's, let us continue to press into this life. Let's be a people that are living a life worthy of the Lord, taking the call seriously, but not in a way that's paralyzing, that's scary, but, but you, with the word that they're praying for the Colossians, not just patience and endurance, but with joy, that we would look more like God, more like his son, and that he would get the glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we thank you for what you've done in us. We thank you for what you're doing through us. We pray, Lord, for, for every one of us here. Lord, would you pinpoint for us the areas of our life where we are not living in conformity to you and not living in a way that shows off the, the sheer mercy and grace and love of Jesus? Or would you please show us ways in which you're wanting us to live differently? And would you would you make us a people of strength and power, relying on you and the power of your spirit as we seek to live these ways you're calling us to? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.